scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through 30. So you'll find the book of Exodus early in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles that are in front of you or perhaps underneath you and turn to your neighbor and ask them, where is Exodus? And they will help you find it. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word as we look to this particular passage this morning. And please bear with me as I try to pronounce all these names. Listen to God's word. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are, the son, these are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of their life being of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On this day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. You do not know the end from the beginning. What that means, in other words, is that there is no way for you to tell in any given moment just how things are going to turn out. 
Reformation theologian John Calvin had an experience like this. He was first called to preach in Geneva in 1536, and due to political and theological uh, conflicts, he was kicked out of his pulpit in Geneva only after two years. And he was actually kicked out of the city of Geneva, exiled. For several years, Calvin lived in Strasbourg, where he enjoyed some of the happiest and most productive years of his life. But then one day, two years later, the leaders of Geneva came back and begged him to return. Begged him to return to the pulpit ministry in which he had been expelled. And for his part, Calvin had no interest in going back to Geneva. He said, whenever I call to mind the wretchedness of my life there, how can it not be but that my soul must shudder at any proposal for my return? He also commented, Rather would I submit to death a hundred times over than to that cross on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. And yet Calvin eventually returned, and he would not ignore his calling. He had no idea how things were going to turn out. He didn't know if he was going to get pushed out of the pulpit again. He did not know the end from the beginning. He didn't know that he would stay at that church for the next 24 years of his life until his death. And that he would write 48 volumes of books and tracts and sermons and commentaries and letters, all hammered out on the anvil of pastoral responsibility. He didn't know that his writings would shape Western thought. He didn't know that, it would, that he would continue to have an influence on the church today. In hindsight, we might say the decision to return to Geneva was the right one for Calvin. But he did not know the end from the beginning. And this is something that we see here this morning as we return in our exposition through the book of Exodus when we encounter this strange genealogy. As a church, we've been making our way through the book of Exodus And you'll recall that God has sent Moses to return back to Egypt at the age of 80 to be the deliverer of his enslaved people. Initially, Moses had brought the message of God to Israel, and they had rejoiced with gladness at the hearing of of God's gracious news, of the good news. But upon standing before Pharaoh and declaring, Oh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, things didn't quite go according to plan. Pharaoh retaliated by increasing the workload on the people. On the Hebrew slaves, such backbreaking labor drove the Israelite foremen to actually accuse Moses. His own people accused him of causing trouble. What's more, Moses went back to the people of Israel, as we saw last week. But yet again, they did not listen. So Pharaoh didn't listen. The Israelite foremen didn't listen. The nation of Israel is not listening. Three strikes, and Moses says, I'm out. You see, in verse 12, Moses says, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Essentially, Moses is saying, I can't keep doing what you're calling me to do. I am not good at this. I am not equipped to do this. I'm done. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. 
Now, if someone is, of uncircum- is uncircumcised, it means that they are not prepared, not fit for the Lord's service. Moses himself found that out the hard way back in chapter 4. When on his return journey to Egypt, he had left his son uncircumcised and the Lord nearly killed him in judgment. To be uncircumcised is to be unfit and unprepared for service in the hands of God. And that is what Moses is saying about his lips. He says it's not, it's not good enough. He looks at the evidence before him, all this rejection over and over and over again. And he's saying it's just not good enough. No one is listening. I can't do it. And then comes this genealogy. I do think I should have received some applause for being able to pronounce or trying to pronounce some of it. And you're probably wondering, what in the world is this genealogy doing here? Here's Moses complaining of his inability, his, how he dreads going back into Pharaoh. And then genealogy. What? It's filled with names you don't know, you can't pronounce, and you won't remember. Now, is this some kind of commercial break from Moses? Like, let's take a break, you know, and uh, in his writing of Exodus, and all of a sudden he's saying, well, let's take a break, and let me demonstrate to you the authenticity of my lineage. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't, I don't think it's trying to be some type of apologetic as to the historicity of the Bible. Yeah, this seems like a poorly placed, because this would seem like a very poorly placed interruption for a commercial break. I mean, if he was composing this, he should have put it earlier. When we're talking about in chapter 2, when we're talking about Moses and him being found in the river. Why then, when Moses is composing and stitching together the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, does he put a genealogy here? I would submit to you that this is not an interruption, not an accident, not because of poor editing and bad writing skills, but it is placed here by literary genius and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Though seemingly disjointed, all of verses 10 through 30 belong together. One single unit. It forms a purposeful pattern, often used in Scripture to draw attention to what is being written. It's called a chiasm, a chiasm. And the idea of a chiasm is that of a mirror structure. So a chiasm will look like this, A, B, C, statements about A, B, C, and then it'll mirror C, B, A, or A, B, C, B, A. So the first and last statements are similar. You know, the second statement and the second to last are similar, and there's something in the middle. That's a chiasm. And actually, there are all sorts of sayings that we're familiar with that are chiasms. Uh, simple ones like, when the going gets tough, the cut, uh, that's right, the tough get going. Here's one you don't know. Winston Churchill said, we shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. And there are chiasms in the Bible. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Chiasms occur in a verse, sometimes in a long stretch of prophetic um, passage. And the purpose may simply to be able to say things more memorably, more poetically. And sometimes the purpose is to focus your attention on what's in the middle. And here we see in Exodus that this chiasm holds together this section. 
you see it here in, in that it begins with a dialogue that God has with Moses, and he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Then it goes to a report that God speaks to Moses and Aaron in verse 13. At the center is this genealogy, and then it goes back out, and it goes to a report again as God speaks to Moses and Aaron, and it ends, concludes with a dialogue of God with Moses in verses 28 through 30. So again, Moses is objecting once again, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Now, I show you that to see that this whole section really belongs together. So why would Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put a genealogy in the middle of this? Here's why. The genealogy is meant to provide an answer to Moses' objection. Moses says, look, I can't do it. I'm not equipped. This is not my bag. And Moses inserts the genealogy in hindsight to show God's people that God was right to call Moses and Aaron for what they were to do, and Moses was wrong for objecting to God. Now, of course, God is not speaking to Moses with a genealogy in that specific moment, historically speaking. This is Moses, in hindsight, writing about this and inserting this as an answer, teaching people. Remember that the Exodus is written to a second generation of Israelites that have already been freed from Egypt. They are in the wilderness, and the first generation is passing away. And Moses needed to show God's people that in hindsight, he had no business quitting on God, and neither should they. We all know that hindsight is 2020, meaning that it's easy to understand something after it has already happened, right? Like, we understand that it was probably wrong that we hoarded toilet paper last year. We understand that it was Certainly wrong that we were sanitizing our mail or, you know, our groceries or whatever it was. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And in hindsight, Moses is saying, I was wrong in objecting to God's calling on my life. Things were difficult. I was discouraged. I wanted to give up. And I was wrong. I couldn't see past the end of my nose. Moses did not know the end from the beginning. And this genealogy proves it. And what does this genealogy demonstrate? Three things. First, that he is from a priestly lineage. Moses and Aaron are from a priestly lineage. This genealogy, like almost all genealogies in the Bible, is selective. It doesn't go through everyone. It doesn't go through all 12 sons of Jacob or of the tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. It begins with Reuben, the first son, and then with Simeon, and then it gets to Levi, the third son of Jacob and Leah. And that's where the genealogy breaks off. Reuben and Simeon are mentioned only as placeholders to show that that Levi is in the succession of Israel's sons. The remainder of the genealogy traces from Levi and his descendants exclusively all the way to Phinehas. Okay? That's the last name that you see. There are markers in this genealogy that telling us which particular branch within this Levite genealogy is important. So, for example, Levi, Kohath, and Amram are important. How do we know this? Because when Moses composed it, he writes the years of their lives. So there are some markers within the text itself telling us these men are important, pay attention to them. 
Then there is Aaron and Eleazar, and their importance is marked off by having the names of their wives included in the genealogy. And finally, the genealogy ends with Phineas, who undoubtedly everyone in the wilderness knew about because of his zeal for the Lord. Now, one of the things that this genealogy demonstrates is that Aaron and also Moses were rightful heirs of the priestly line. Some of us don't really know much about Levi. When we hear Levi, we think about genes or we think about Leviticus or something like that. But the Levites would be the tribe of Israel that were designated to be the priests of the nation of Israel. So this genealogy shows that Moses and Aaron are of the right stock. They belonged to the priestly line. Now, during the days of Israel, no one is called to be a priest. You're born into it. You can be called to be a prophet. You can be trained to be a prophet. But you could not be called into being a priest. You had to be born into the priestly family. And Aaron and Moses are part of the Levitical line, and Aaron, in particular, is part of the priestly line. And one of the things this would remind God's people is that in God's design, Moses and Aaron are the right people to intercede on their behalf. Moses is saying, I can't stand before Pharaoh. No one listens to me. Israel doesn't listen to me, but this genealogy says no. In God's sovereign providence, in God's sovereign design, you're part of the Levites. Your brother Aaron is going to be a high priest, and the priestly line will come from him. You are precisely the kind of people that should go in and make intercession on behalf of Israel and plead on their behalf. That's what priestly families do. Of course, Moses at at that moment wasn't aware of all this. He doubted his ability to do it, what God had called him to do. But Moses couldn't see the end from the beginning. And what he needed to do was trust God. Now, church, we must remember that we too are of a priestly lineage. We must remember our genealogy. We must remember that we come from a long line of people who have faithfully proclaimed the gospel message. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 2 9, Christians, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. That's who we are. That's our genealogy. Beloved, your identity is not in color or culture, but chosenness. You are a royal priest with immediate access to God, and you have an exalted, active role in God's presence. You are not chosen and possessed by God, to fritter away your time doing nothing or shrinking back in service. Your life is a priestly service. Whether you are scientist or student, whether you're a physician or a parent, and in our spiritual lineage, we must remember how we do things, how we love, how we risk how we persevere, how we are not quitters or cowards. You might think, I can't do this anymore. You might think, I'm not equipped to do this. I'm not equipped to host people at my home. I share the gospel. It doesn't make a difference. I'm just not good at it. I've shared with my mom. I prayed for her for 20 years. I'm not equipped. Lord, send somebody else. 
But church, you are just the right people to take, live, and speak the message of the gospel because you are in Christ and you have been given the spirit of Christ, not the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. There's a saying among Christians. It's a, it's a nice chiasm. God does not call the equipped, but he equips the called. So walk forward and trust God with whatever he is calling you to do. Ask yourself, where might I be more faithful? What am I shrinking back from? Where am I being fearful? Where am I being too cautious with God's calling on my life? Go and trust God to do what the Lord wants you to do. Moses needed to be reminded he was of priestly lineage. But if you look carefully in this genealogy, it also is a reminder that he is of a sinful lineage, both a priestful lineage and a sinful lineage. There are all sorts of dysfunctional people in this genealogy. A few skeletons in the closet that have not been censored out by Moses' hand. Consider the tragic tale of Aaron's cousin, Korah, mentioned in here. Later in number 16, we read that Korah incited several hundred others to join him in challenging Moses and Aaron as if to say, are you guys really the right ones? And Korah was not content with what God had given, in his, given him in his ministry. He wanted more recognition, thought Moses was standing in the way. And as the original audience of Exodus no doubt remembered, while Korah's pride had swallowed him up, God opened up the earth to swallow up Korah. They perished for their sin. Or there's mentioned in here, Nadab and Abihu. In verse 23, Aaron's sons. In in Leviticus 10, they served in the tabernacle. And they decided that they were going to worship God any way they wanted to worship him. And we're just going to do it our way. And they were struck dead by the Lord because they offered up strange fire, unauthorized fire before God. They should have known better, but they treated God lightly. They had no concern with God's glory. They said, oh, we're going to worship him any way we want to worship. And the Lord killed them. Their bodies had to be carried out by Mishael and Elzaphan, their relatives. And of course, there's the little phrase in verse 20. Look at that. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. You read that. And you're like, ew. Moses and Aaron's daddy married his aunt. The original hearers would have heard that. They would have already received the law by this point, And they would have known that that's sin. But there's no scrubbing this from the record books. The Bible does not whitewash history. It is true history. And the history of Israel is a history not of people being righteous. And therefore God chose them. It is a history of them being sinful, and yet God, in his mercy, chose them to do the work that he wanted them to do. God, in his sovereign grace, knows all about Moses and Aaron. He knows his past. He knows his sin. He knows he comes from imperfect families. And yet none of these things disqualifies Moses from faithful obedience. God is saying, you don't have to get everything right. You just have to be willing to go. You don't have to be clever. Your past will not dictate that future. And the truth is that we all come from a sinful lineage. All of us. Not just that we have a few strange uncles in our family. 
But all of us are born under the genealogy of Adam. Sometimes people like to ask me, oh, like, who is your greatest influence, Pastor Steve? You know, and I'm supposed to name some great Christian hero. And you know what I think in the back of my mind but don't actually say because it's a total juke? But I think Adam is my greatest influence. You see, when God created this world, he created Adam and Eve in his own image to be like him and have unhindered fellowship with him. And yet Adam rebelled in the garden. And as a result of Adam's sin, all of us enter the world as fall in a fallen nature. All of us are born with sinful tendencies, desires, and dispositions in our hearts. Sin is inherent in us. We are morally ruined beings. We are. We have only to look upon this world and know that that's true. We have only to look at our own lives and know that's true that we've fallen short of a standard. That none is righteous, no, not one, because ultimately none of us are born preferring God. We do not have a taste for divine things. We'd rather pursue our own idols. Maybe that's even ourselves, our own pleasures than God. We're not born honoring God, reverencing his holiness, admiring his greatness. None of us treasured his beauty, believed his promises, or feared his wrath. We don't give a hoot about God when we're born. Our depravity doesn't stem from world systems and structures. It is not a result of bad examples in our lives. It is because we are all sons and daughters of Adam. And the heinousness of our sin deserves an eternal punishment. And if you think that's an overstatement, that our sin deserves an eternal punishment in hell, then you do not understand the sinfulness of your sin and the infinite greatness of God. You must think that God sending his own son, Jesus, was a complete overreaction. But the good news of Christianity is not that we're from a sinful lineage. The good news is that you don't have to remain in that lineage. The good news is that God sent his son, only son, to be a man to die upon the cross to pay the penalty you deserved so that you will be found not in Adam, but you you can be found in the second Adam, in Jesus Christ. Whereas Adam failed and sinned, Christ in flawless and complete obedience succeeded perfectly, so that if you turn to him, you will be saved. You will be rescued from being a son of disobedience to be adopted into the family of God and be called sons and daughters. The grace is free. And the gift is free, and the righteousness of Christ is free. And, we, and I just ask, and I stand before you, if you do not know Jesus, will you turn to him today? Come into the family of God. Church, you who are in Christ, take heart, because despite your sinful lineage, you are not in the flesh. But praise God, you are in the spirit. You are. You were depraved but now disciples. Yes, you're imperfect, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have received the, son, the spirit of adoption by, whom, by which you can cry out to Abba, Father, because you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. None of us have a perfect background. Moses is saying, I have uncircumcised lips. I'm not good at speaking. And the Lord is saying, don't you think I know that? 
And I've seen a lot worse. I've put up with a lot worse. I've judged a lot worse. I've used a lot worse. And I'm asking you to be faithful and not give up. This is the way God has always worked in his design for redemption, in his plan for this world. He does not take the strong and the perfect. He takes the weak, the lowly, the despised to accomplish his will that he might get all the glory. Quickly, Third and finally, this genealogy reflects a providential lineage. We've seen a priestly, sinful, and finally a providential lineage. Look again at, the num- at these generations. Count with me. The first generation of Israelites subjected to enslavement in Egypt is represented by Levi's children, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. That's one generation. Uh, the second generation is Moses' father, Amram. The third generation is Moses and Aaron and those who, and their cousins who did not enter into, into Canaan. And it is in the promised land. And Aaron's son, Eleazar, is the fourth generation who does enter into Canaan. Now, why is this important that there's these four generations between Levi and Phineas? If you look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, this is where we have God's promise to Abraham. And he says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, slaves there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. And if you look at Genesis 15, 16, it says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. You see, there was a promise. Four generations, Abraham. You're going to be slaves, but four generations later, you're coming back, I promise you. And Moses, looking in hindsight to all that has happened, seeing that the next generation is about to enter into the promised land, says to them, look at this genealogy and know that God's word is true. His promises are always true. Moses tells the people of Israel, I didn't trust God at first. I didn't think any of this could possibly happen on my watch. And if you look back and count, look back and count and see God's sovereignty at work, you'll see that God is always at work. His promises are true, and this genealogy reminds us that God's sovereignty and uh, sovereignly and providentially orders all things, all people, all births, all deaths, all slavery and release, their suffering and deliverance. God ordains all things that come to pass and always upholds his promises. Because while we do not see the end from the beginning, God always sees the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9 says this, I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And he goes on and says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Isn't that a wonderful verse? God is not some mere fortune teller having, oh, he can tell the future. No, he knows what's coming and will fulfill his promises because he's planned for what's coming, and he purposes and performs what he plans. God has the rightful authority, freedom, wisdom, and power to bring about everything that happens. The Heidelberg Catechism says God's providence 
is his almighty and ever-present power by which he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. Moses and his sovereign grace would be the instrument by which God fulfills his promise to deliver his people. And Moses didn't know the end from the beginning. And he certainly didn't know that from this genealogy, 1,500 years later, God would keep an even greater promise. Because if you look at this genealogy, we see Aminadab, Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And if you look in the early chapter, first chapter of Matthew, what do you see? A genealogy. Aminadab and Nashon would eventually, he's, they're there, and eventually from them would come King David, and from King David would eventually come Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Praise the Lord. So what is God calling you to do, to keep on doing You may be discouraged. You might have doubts of whether or not you can do it. You might say, who am I? But remember who you are. Remember your spiritual heritage. The Lord has placed you where you are. He knows the stuff you're made of, and he's numbered your days. So take comfort. Be faithful. Do not give up. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, even these portions that are genealogies that show us your faithfulness, your sovereign hand over all time and your good and providential hand to order all things for your own glory. So Father, we pray that we would look to Christ each day and place our faith in him alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.